0: Hi, I'm Xian Xiao, a healthcare researcher.
1: And I'm Sammy Winemaker, a palliative care doctor. If you or someone you know is facing a serious illness, you've probably spent many hours in waiting rooms, scared and not sure what to expect. We can help.
0: Together, we've heard from thousands of patients and families dealing with serious illness. Our goal is to share what we've learned so you can be more prepared and in control This is The Waiting Room Revolution, and it starts right now. Welcome back to The Waiting Room Revolution. It's Sien and Sammy again, and we have finished the seven keys in our prior episodes. And this episode is really thinking about the key bits of advice, the things that people wish they had known when they realized that time was running out. And I would just say, that many of our keys are meant to be used right at the moment of diagnosis or could be applicable all throughout the illness journey. This is the time where we're going to talk about things that come to mind when we're closer to the end of life or closer to realizing that time is running out, to that final chapter. It could be as long as a couple years, the last thousand days of life, the last year of life, anything in between. So Sammy, how do we know when one is entering that last phase or chapter of life? when they are at that tipping point of no return?
1: No matter what treatments and no matter what therapies are offered to a person, a person's body can only hold up to an illness for so long. And there comes a time where we begin to see what we refer to as a tipping point in the illness. So what I'm saying is we as healthcare providers know that these illnesses eventually come to a point where we can no longer keep a person's body uh, hearty, strong, and stable to the illness, no matter what the illness is. At some point, our bodies become tired. And so the tipping point can sneak up on people, and they may not even know it's happening, where they begin to see themselves get more tired, they feel weaker, They're not able to do as much as they used to. They're not up and about. They're not getting out as much as they could before. It's getting more difficult to get to treatments, to clinics. They're staying home more. Um, They're spending more time on one floor of the house. And again, this can creep up on people. It doesn't happen overnight. This is actually a trend I'm talking about because everyone in an illness can have a bad day or a bad week or a bad weekend. So I don't want people to get scared that, uh oh, I'm at that tipping point. The tipping point normally fades in. Okay. So it begins, and sometime into it, a person can step back and say, whoa, hmm, something's changing here. Or family might notice, oh boy, my loved one isn't as strong as they were a couple of weeks ago or a month ago. And suddenly everyone begins to recognize that there's a downward slope happening, a downward trend. Again, it's a trend. It's not just a point in time.
0: So the tipping point is the idea that they are entering the final chapter of life. And that when you see these signs of this general decline of the illness, like losing weight or stamina or constant fatigue, and you consider where you are in the overall illness trajectory, you can conclude that this is not reversible. Something is happening. And you're entering that final chapter. And that time is starting to run out. So one common question I know you get all the time is, how do we know how much time is left in this final chapter? What do you look for to answer that question?
1: Once this tipping point happens and there's no turning back, if we step back and ask ourselves how quickly or how slowly are we seeing these changes happen can help us understand someone's timeline in generalities. The rate at which we see someone fading often predicts softly how much time a person has left or how quickly or slowly this is moving. So from month to month to month, if we see someone losing energy, needing more help, not eating as much, sleeping more, and that's month to month happening, then generally we're, we can say that this person's probably got some months left. This is moving monthly. And then there comes a time where we start seeing things pick up. Well, this is no longer staying, you know, at a month to month rate. It's now changing week to week to week to week, not just one bad week, but a trend downwards with no explanation for it. Then we can safely say, well, you know, this looks like it's moving weekly now. So you may be looking at a timeline that's measured in weeks. Again, hard to know, is it two, is it four or six, but something's moving weekly. And then that will turn into eventually daily changes. So we go from month to month, to week to week, to day to day, trending downwards. And as you see that rate changing, you know that time is shorter and shorter and shorter.
0: So what are some of the biggest issues you deal with when you make a home visit?
1: Some of the biggest anxieties that people have uh, during this phase is the natural loss of appetite that many people get when they enter into the last uh, months of life that one of the ways that our body is wired to slow down is to naturally um, slow all of our needs so the appetite naturally goes away in the last months of life and that's to help the body prepare to do this fading process But the fading process is not from the lack of nutrition. It's a side effect of fading from the illness. And I say that because many patients and families feel that if they just fed their loved one more or hydrated them more, that they could prolong this or stop it or um, reverse this fading. But this fading is not from lack of nutrition. Nutrition has nothing to do with this part of the story, even though it might be an important part at other times in the illness. And so the idea of shifting away from focusing on nutrition as the antidote or the rescue measure to this fading process is uncomfortable for people unless they know that this is actually what we expected at the end of this illness a way that someone's body keeps itself comfortable while it's
0: fading. Yes, I hear this a lot in interviews. The weight loss at end of life is a big trigger, and many patients and families feel like if they could just eat more, maybe they could delay the decline. But it's actually the body's natural way of slowly shutting down. So what are some of the other issues besides the nutrition concerns?
1: The other thing I like to remind people is that dying doesn't necessarily hurt. I think we're so scared of dying that we think it must be associated with terrible pain. And most people I meet, that's their number one fear. I promised my loved one that he or she would not have any pain. Or patients say to me, as long as I don't feel a thing or I have no pain, then that's fine. Do what you want. So I'm I think that it's Hollywood that uh, sets us up for these kinds of extraordinary deaths but to be honest with you dying is not necessarily plagued with terrible symptoms in fact it's uncommon for new symptoms to crop up out of nowhere so I like to reassure patients and families that if pain has not been a big and consistent part of your illness journey it's really unlikely to raise its ugly head um, in this last year or last months or last weeks or days of life. The fading just continues. If someone has had trouble with their particular illness, with things like nausea and vomiting along the way, or breathlessness along the way, or pain along the way, those things can enter into the picture once in a while the same way they always have, and they can be managed. But what I'm trying to tell you is just because someone fades downward doesn't mean automatically symptoms crescendo and start heading upwards. They're not paired together like that. Most illnesses are not associated with pain. The biggest symptom people experience in the final months and weeks of life is weakness and fatigue and loss of appetite which are all
0: normal. We've talked a lot about the questions you get when you're caring for patients and families at home, but I want to flag that caring for someone who is dying at home is a lot of work. Morning, noon, and night. And while it is the preference for many, it is not always right for everyone. And certainly it's a lot of work for the caregiver and the family.
1: I've explained what the patient experience is like in the last year. But let's not forget that the caregivers and the families also have a parallel experience. Whereas the patient is changing over months and weeks and days, the role of the caregiver and the family changes over that period of time as well. And so it's important to know what you're in for in those roles. A lot of people tell me, oh, my my first choice is to die at home. It's important for not just the patient, but the family to understand um, that choice to die at home and what that's going to look like and what supports are available to a family at home. We don't like people to be in a situation where they're caught off guard or they don't know who to call or someone hasn't explained to them what this is going to look
0: like. Okay. So that begs the question. What are some of the key questions people should be asking if they are considering caring for their loved one at home?
1: During this phase of the illness, it's really important to talk about things like who is going to be part of the care team when it requires more personal care, what supports are available to the patient and family, and where is this all going to unfold, which really depends on what's available in any person's um, area. So does the area have hospices um, or other places that if things don't unfold comfortably at home, that there
0: are other options? So this is the perfect time to talk about the specialty called palliative care, what we both have expertise in. And we sometimes call it the P word between us because, quite frankly, it's frightening to people and it's associated with death and dying. And yet so much of what we are talking about in this waiting room revolution is giving people the knowledge and the keys so that they can receive a palliative care approach earlier in their disease trajectory and not just in their last weeks or days of life. Or they'll only get introduced to it after all curative treatments have stopped. We're trying to allow people to access this knowledge earlier.
1: Yes, because of course we know that palliative care Uh, can and should coexist alongside other types of care. It's very old-fashioned to think that palliative care only starts when that other type of care stops. The more modern way of thinking about palliative care is that it's actually a philosophy of care that's peppered into the entire journey um, from the beginning of a diagnosis of a life-threatening progressive illness And it might just be peppered in a little bit at the beginning, and over time, it increases in proportion. But the whole time, people can receive many different types of care, including palliative care. It's not just reserved for the end. The other thing that people assume is that palliative care can only be delivered by palliative care specialists, Uh, but that's not true either. Palliative care, again, is a philosophy of care that should be taught to all nurses and all doctors um, so that they know how to shift across lanes and seamlessly um, care for people in a patient-centered way without ever having to label someone palliative right before they die. However, palliative care specialists can be helpful at times along the journey, not just at the end, but sometimes they're consulted at the beginning, and the middle, and at the end of an illness journey.
0: Yeah, I have heard palliative care described as simply good patient care. And so if we have people listening in the waiting room right now, and who understand that palliative care isn't just for end of life, and if they bring it up with their providers, say they want to know what palliative care resources are available if they should ever need it, and they ask their doctors or nurses, and then they get pushback. They'll get Oh, well, you're not palliative yet, or you have to stop treatment before we can refer you to them. What can those patients and families say to those doctors and nurses?
1: Okay, well, I I suppose people could say um, my understanding is that if my symptoms have become difficult to manage, or there's something very complicated about how I'm doing, that a palliative care specialist team can be helpful. At any time in my illness. I've learned this from this amazing podcast. So to my doctor, I would say, given that my idea of palliative care involves the routine palliative care that I'll get from you, my family doctor, and the routine palliative care I'll get from all the other people caring for me. um, If things get complicated, what access do I have to a palliative care specialist team at different points along my illness. Now, the doctor might respond by saying, oh, well, you're not palliative yet. And then you can say, well, after I listen to this podcast, I realize that you're not supposed to label me palliative at any point in time, that palliative care is an approach to care. And it's never too early to be receiving palliative care because palliative care is just good patient care. It's just patient-centered care and I might need a palliative care specialist at times when it would appear that the teams that are caring for me are struggling, that my pain is not well managed, or that I have symptoms that we're having trouble managing, or I need more information. So, to my doctor, I would like to make sure that I receive a palliative approach when it's appropriate along my illness journey. And at times that I have access to this specialist layer of palliative care providers when when we, you and me, doctor, need it.
0: So the last thing I want to touch on is connected to the fear of talking about palliative care because it's associated with death. But our experience has been that if you talk openly about the possibility of it, that there are positives that come along the way. It's like talking about the future allows you to better enjoy the present and the time you do have. So what's your experience? What's the reaction of patients and families after they visit with you?
1: The good news is, is many people are terrified once they realize that they're in the last chapter of their illness, that they're going to die out of nowhere. They're just going to close their eyes and up and die behind everyone's back. And so we have a lot of people scared to close their eyes at night. Because they're worried that will be the last time. Or we have a lot of family members who won't leave the room for months and months and months because they think there's going to be this moment where a person up and dies. And you know, that's not what happens. People don't typically up and die. Can someone die suddenly? Yes. Okay, so I can't promise that it never happens, but I would say 99% of the time, people fade over time and you can see it coming. The benefits of seeing it coming means that people have time to prepare. This is an expected decline. It's not sudden. It's not like a light switch turning off. There's time to share. There's time to hug. There's time to say the things that you want to say. There's time to be together and to celebrate someone's life. There's time to decide how do you want to spend the next months or the next weeks. There's time to decide, do I want to go for that experimental treatment? Or if I know we're changing weekly now, do we just want to be together as a family? Time is precious and time is the opportunity. There's time to write letters. Uh, Many patients write letters to their loved ones um, for future important dates like weddings or birthdays. So you can see where, you know, when you ask people, um, what do you think is a good death? Some people say, well, you know, I'd like to just sit in my chair and watch TV, close my eyes and die suddenly. Um, (laughs) Well, (laughs) you know, maybe that would be good for some people. um, But for most people, that doesn't happen, to be honest. Uh, For most people, it happens over a period of time. Dying is a phase. It's not a point in time.
0: Yeah, and there's time to find meaning in life, this closure and acceptance. Some have said to me that after they find the peace in it, they are living out all their bonus days, free from burden. I think of it as having time to do what the author Ira Bayok says in his book, The Four Things That Mattered Most to People, which are, please forgive me, I forgive you, thank you, and I love you. And in the end, if things are prepared for, There's a strong focus on gratitude and love.
1: I have to tell you that I've also witnessed a lot of joy and a lot of love and a lot of silver linings during the last year of life. Most people dread the idea of, you know, losing a loved one or being the person with the illness who's in the last months or weeks of life. But I can't tell you how many beautiful moments I've witnessed. And people wouldn't trade that time for anything. I've had a lot of people say to me that, you know, in a way, this illness has been a gift. I, I would have never known how much so-and-so uh, respected me or that I meant so much to this person or that person. I mean, you don't get those gifts when you die suddenly from something else like a car accident. So, again, there is a need to prepare in for the last year. There's a need for knowledge in the last year, but there's also a lot of opportunity in the last year, especially because if you know what's coming, you can turn that time into however you want to spend that time. And these are the gifts that are part of the silver lining of knowing what this roadmap looks like.
0: I'd like to bring in our next guest, Krista, who is a friend of Sammy and me. And she, while caring for her brother-in-law near the end of his life, reached out to Sammy with some questions. And I thought that would be a good story to talk about here in today's episode. So thanks so much for joining us today, Krista. My pleasure. Can you share with the listeners a bit more details about you and your story?
2: Yeah, I guess, I mean, I guess I'll... Start by saying yes. I've worked in the healthcare system. I'm not on the clinical side, but I certainly talk and um, work with a lot of patients and family caregivers. But there is a different side of it when it's personal. So when it's someone you know, you don't see things the way that someone who doesn't know them sees them. And so that's the the power of being objective and subjective and having both in in um, a healthcare journey. And so for me. Um, if I'm being totally honest, I actually, the thought of death and dying really scared me. It still does. But as I get older, I've now seen it up close a couple of times and I feel more comfortable with it. Um, and I, I understand the peace that comes with it, especially at the end of a very difficult journey, which was the case with my brother-in-law.
1: It's, inter- it's interesting that sometimes the tipping point in this late stage of an illness Is not obvious as you're going through it, but becomes more obvious in retrospect, where there was clear evidence in hindsight that he was beginning to struggle.
2: So what I what I had witnessed when I went to see him in his very last days um, was a real weakness. So his um, inability to walk down the hall without having to stop to catch his breath and really having to have people hold him up as he was walking And all I could think was, I think the end is really near. His mother is a nurse and had been for many years. And she wasn't saying the end is near. So I I started to second guess myself to think, okay, like, is this the time when we need to let people know that the end is near? It was COVID. And so there were some serious protocols around, you know, people couldn't just come. So was this the time to pull the trigger? And so the first thing I thought was, "I, I need to just double check my assumptions here. And so I sent this message to Sammy saying, can you, can you just help me understand what the last days look like? Because I felt like we were there, but I wasn't sure. And I don't even think I said that in my email. I just wanted to know what I should be looking for. And as soon as I read the email back, I knew where we were at and, and um, was able to bring my daughter in to see him Um, for the last time, and to be more confident that I wasn't overreacting in that moment. And also to just, as the person who wasn't blood related to um, him, I I just, I felt like I had a bit of a more neutral role to play because everyone else was very emotional in, in that moment.
0: This episode is not just about the last few days or weeks of life, which is when you reached out to Sammy. It's also about the idea of trying to identify this tipping point much earlier, say in the last thousand days of life or the last year of life. So looking back, do you think you recognize signs that things were declining much earlier?
2: There was a few things that were um, evident. So for example, he was two dogs and they had not been um, walked enough uh, when my parents or when his parents went to see him. And so they knew that there was, he wasn't able to get out. And he, I, I, there were other signs, I think, in terms of how the apartment looked when they got there that indicated that things were not um, well, that he wasn't able to take care of himself and his, his two pets uh, well. And so, you know, and even then when they went back and spent time um, getting him set up at their house, He could not have the dogs around, um, the two dogs around. He could have one, but not both because they were just too much um, energy and boisterousness around him. And so those were signs in retrospect. Because of COVID, we didn't go into the house. We only um, talked to them over the phone um, until that day um, where his mom had finally said, I think he needs a hospital bed and and, um, they weren't strong enough to move the furniture. And so I was, Paul and I were going in to do that. And that's when I saw him and thought, okay, we don't have very much time left. But again, my mother-in-law talk, always talks about death. Like it's it's not it's something she's seen her whole life, but it's distinctly different when it's someone you love. And especially in a situation, he was in his early 40s, their youngest son. you know, it was a scenario that wasn't something they were comfortable facing. It, you know, was a hard situation.
1: So it sounds like being more in the know about what was happening uh, allowed you to ready yourself um, for what was inevitable. Yeah. Yet some of your family members did not have that opportunity because they didn't see it coming.
2: So I could give you a really good example of this, which is that all of the paperwork for power of attorney and for his will were beside his bed unsigned when he died. Hmm. So, They knew that they had to do it, but they kept thinking they had more time. I just think that's a really interesting example where I think everybody would have felt more empowered if they had known the time was that close, that they're, you know, and and I guess in some ways that would be advice that I would give someone else is not to, not to wait too long on that. Um, so I, I remember pulling in and his mom said, yeah, this was, we, we kept talking about doing this and we, we never got around to it. Mm-hmm. I've worked in healthcare for a long time, but I've never worked in palliative uh, care or hospice care. And I remember the first time I met you, Sammy, um, and CN introduced me to you. I, I finally felt like I could ask questions that, I would never think about asking before. And again, I, I like, I really, I, the, the fear of death and dying is real for me. Um, so, you know, in part, it's something I don't want to talk about. I don't want to think about. I don't, I remember someone telling me they were a death doula. And I, like, I was like having an out of body experience. Like what in the world is that? Um, and now, and then when I started to actually have the opportunity to think about it and talk about it, I did. I do feel more empowered. I feel less fear. I'm not going to say I don't have any fear, but I feel less fear. Um, and I, I also recognize that need for um, comfort in those last days of life. And so for me, I feel like I had this luxury of meeting you in a professional capacity that opened my my mind and my kind of thoughts and, and questions and felt comfortable asking them, but not everybody has that opportunity, but they should.
1: So some people say to us, um, why would anyone want to know? Um, why would anyone want to know in advance that they're dying? Um, it's just going to make them feel helpless and hopeless, and everyone's going to give up and be sad and depressed.
2: That's a really interesting question, because again, just to kind of set the context, Six weeks prior to that day, um, we were in Dominican Republic with him. So we had been um, on a final family holiday. Um, again, in my mind, I knew it was that. No one else talked about it that way, but I was pretty clear that that's what it was. Um, and he was really, really well at the resort. I mean, we obviously, there were deficits that we had grown to know were part of his life at that stage but he could walk on his own he could get around he um, you know had lots of time with my daughter reading books with her and doing things on the computer and spending time on the beach and so just six weeks earlier we had seen him in this very healthy state. I think my brother-in-law knew what was coming and so I think that's why he went to Dominican because he he knew it was going to be one of the last opportunities even though that was never spoken. So I do think, there was a piece of him that understood how dire his situation was the other thing i would the other thing that actually is another really good example of how things might have been different at the end is my mother-in-law would have administered more pain medication had she known that he was that close to the end because there really wasn't any opportunity for meaningful conversation and she has real regret about that Um, that she worries that he was in so much pain and he could have been more comfortable if they had realized that we were talking days or hours versus weeks and months.
0: So you talked about your mother-in-law there. So what about the impact to you and your immediate family, Krista? What was that like?
2: Yeah, I mean, again, um, in this scenario, like the death of... My brother-in-law, I think, really took my husband by surprise when for me, it, it, I just didn't feel surprised. And in some ways, I felt like I could handle it better because, again, I sort of had that moment when the day I saw him, I thought, this isn't right when I sent you the message. And, and then I, I said to my daughter, who, you know, this again, she's young, she's, she was eight you know, I I think you need to come and see him. And she didn't, you know, because of COVID, she didn't want to go in the house. You know, there were a whole bunch of things happening at that moment. Um, But I wasn't surprised when two days later, um, they called to say he had passed in the middle of the night. That didn't surprise me. But it did surprise my husband and I feel like, well, I wasn't comfortable saying it to him because, again, it was a very difficult situation. And But I I think, I don't know if it would have made a difference, but at least he would have had the information.
0: So this is our last episode, and it is focused on the last chapter of life. But to bring it full circle, our very first key was the idea about walking two roads, which is the idea that one can balance between hoping for the best and preparing for what's ahead and alternate outcomes. So did that key of walking two roads play out in your experience with your brother-in-law or was preparing for that other road a giant elephant in the room?
2: It was definitely an elephant in the room. Like his dad, that you, you couldn't talk about it in front of him. He was incredibly emotional about it. And and I think for um, my brother-in-law, he really wanted to pursue every possible treatment. Um, and he did at one one point, he had an oncologist who said to him, you can either live for 18 months and have a lot of treatments and be in a lot of pain and and live with all the consequences or all the um, side effects of that. Or you could choose to live for a year in a different way, um, maybe more comfortably. Um, And he was so angry with her because... He he really wanted, he was he was in 42 at diagnosis, 41. And so he, you know, this was not the way his life was gonna end. And I remember about three months before he died, he said, you know what? I finally understand what that doctor meant. Which is so interesting. He said, I finally understood what her message was to me. Because she it was a bit of an interesting, um, conundrum because she was going on mat leave and so then he had a, sec, a next oncologist come in and said we're gonna fight this we're gonna do everything we can we're gonna try every possible option we're gonna do all the experimental stuff we're gonna do everything and my brother-in-law was on board for that but I think he didn't really truly understand um the options now he had a very aggressive form of cancer so I, I'm not sure you know it's, it's hard to go back and rewrite it but uh, he does, he did have that reflection. I remember that. So because I remember, again, because of our work, I I heard when he told me that I remember thinking, hmm, I think I understand what he's what she was saying. And but he wasn't ready to go down that road. Um, and so I, I heard it differently. And I remember when we came back to it, um, and we talked about it while we were in Dominican. And he said, I now understand what she was saying, because he had, he did, he definitely had a number of really serious side effects that took away from his quality of life.
0: Krista, thank you so much for sharing your story today.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: So to wrap up, the first take home is, there are signs to know when an illness is reaching a tipping point. This point of no return that signals the last chapter of life, sometimes the last several months or year before death. And it's important to know the rate of change in a patient's condition, say if they're changing month to month or week to week, that's often a rough signal of how much time is left. The second take home is palliative care is an approach to care that focuses on the person with serious illness and their family. So it includes things like symptom management, informational needs, and psychological, social, and spiritual needs, too. It's important to know it's not only reserved for end-of-life, but can be peppered throughout the illness journey, right from diagnosis. And it doesn't need to be delivered by a palliative care specialist. It can be delivered by generalists, like your family doctor. But it's good to know that there are specialists with unique expertise, in case you need to use them throughout your journey. Finally, the reason why we were talking about the last chapter of life at all is so that you can have enough time to prepare and plan that will allow you to find peace and meaning and acceptance with the time that you do have left and live that time without regret. We found that there are silver linings in the closure of a life and that if you recognize that it is ending, you might use your time differently. Thanks so much for listening. Please go to our website to join in the conversation. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza. The podcast is edited and produced by me, Sien Xiao, and Kayla McMillan. Special thanks to Krista Honstra, Principal of Clarity Hub. For more information, visit us at WaitingRoomRevolution.com Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out.